So if you've ever watched, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of you know, TV cop shows, and one of my favorites of all time was probably the most annoying detective of all time, Columbo. He, he always just had one more question, and we're going to talk about questions in a second, but he always had just one more question. But the reason I like Columbo so much is it was, it was kind of a new format. You saw the crime at the beginning. It's a whodunit, but it wasn't a whodunit. It was how are they going to prove he done it? Because they start off with the crime. You see what happens, and then the next you know, 90 minutes or whatever is how he's going to catch him, how he's going to prove that he done it. NCIS, they have kind of a quirky little shtick that they do with those shows. If you ever watch that show, just bef- the, the beginning of every scene, every kind of act, they, they start with a freeze frame. And then you go through and, and you see the storyline until it comes to commercial break. And just before commercial break, it freezes on that scene that you started at the beginning. So here's what I'm going to do now is I want to I tell you a story uh, in the day of Jesus. Uh, it's the same day that I started talking about last week. It's a day of questions. I'm going to call this question period. And what I'm going to do is I want to start off with the final scene, the final clip. Here's the final freeze frame. The large crowd listened to him with delight, but no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, let's, let's back up and see how we got to that point. So last week, <clears throat> I talked about how Jesus had an encounter with the Herodians and, and the disciples of the Pharisees, and how in that encounter... Uh, They tried to trap him uh, with a question, and I reminded everybody, the Herodians were basically sympathizers of the government. The the Pharisees were the strictest of the political, religious, Jewish parties. Uh, It was all about keeping the rules, making sure everybody follows the traditions in a very harsh way, and their disciples were the ones involved in this encounter, and they came to Jesus, tried to trap him with a question, and in Jesus' response, he taught them the importance of paying taxes, but also the importance of, uh, of honoring God and paying tribute to God. And he did that by asking for a coin. And there was a young disciple of the Pharisees kind of in the front row when he asked for the coin. He flipped Jesus' this coin. And Jesus didn't really give it back to him. Um, he held on to it. Uh, and the guy probably was kind of disgruntled. He might have even gone home because he was quite embarrassed. Um, then Jesus had an encounter with the Sadducees. Now, they're a different group, and I need to explain who they are. The Sadducees, they were essentially the ruling, also a religious political party of the Jews, but they were kind of the ruling party in the Sanhedrin, which was essentially the Jewish high court. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't get along all that well. They didn't really have the same belief system. You would think it on, on, on the surface, but when you actually dug down, you realize that the, the Sadducees actually only believed that the first five books of what we call the Old Testament were, were really the word of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They called the, the books of Moses. And Jesus had a run-in with, with the Sadducees. And one of the things I always remembered way back, this is 20, 25 years ago, I was in a, an adult Sunday school class. Kim Stewart, uh, one of our members, she was teaching the class at that time. And she was teaching us the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I never forgot what she said. She said that the Sadducees, one of the things about them is that they didn't actually believe in a resurrection like the Pharisees. That's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> you groaned, but you're not going to forget that now. I'm just saying. Um, so he had a run-in with the Sadducees, and they, they basically came to him, and they, they portrayed this question. They said, here's this guy, and he's, he's married, and there's no kids, and he dies. And he's got a brother. In Jewish law, it says that if a, if a man dies and, and there's no kids, 
uh, his brother is supposed to marry his wife so that he can have kids by her. So this brother does this, but then he dies. And then there's a third brother, and he ends up marrying this guy's wife because they need to have kids, and, and, and then he dies. This goes right down to seven brothers. You know, nowhere in the story does anybody stop and say, wait a second, is this woman out of her mind? Uh, <laughs> and which man in, this, in his right mind is going to marry that woman? Because, like, we're not that we believe in jinxes, but what the heck? So the question of the Sadducees is this guy marries, uh, this woman marries seven different brothers, and they all die get to heaven, whose wife is she? And so Jesus says, you know what? You guys are wrong in your interpretation. You're in error. First of all, there is no marriage relationships in heaven. People are like angels. There's no, there's no marriages in heaven. Um, but speaking of the resurrection, which they hadn't asked a question on that, but as we talked about last week, when did Jesus actually ever answer a question directly with an answer? He says, speaking of the resurrection, you're also wrong in that, that there is a resurrection. Because even, and he quotes from, the five books of Moses. He said, even in, even in the words that you hold to be true, it says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not a God of the dead. And so he basically silences them and they kind of go away with their tails between their legs. Now the Pharisees realize this is a good opportunity. Jesus has silenced the Sadducees. That's pretty good stuff. And then depending on which of the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you read, you get a different sense because what happens next is that one of the experts in the law, and you got this, these scribes, and you got these, these, these you got Pharisees, but you got scribes, the teachers, experts in the law, not the same. Many scribes were also Pharisees, and teachers of the law were also Pharisees, but there wasn't a one-to-one relationship. These guys were the ones who had the responsibility of copying the scriptures. They didn't have Word. They didn't have Excel. They didn't have Microsoft anything. It was all... Manual labor, elbow grease, grunt work, copying, word for word, letter for letter, space for space. So this was their job, was to copy the manuscripts. Also, to understand the subtle nuances. These, when they talk about a lawyer, they're talking about someone who's really, really well-schooled in Scripture and an expert in the legal system of, of, of God and understanding that. And so they thought, well, we're going to send an, an expert to him to try and trap him. But one of the Gospels gives you a slightly different perspective you get the sense, actually, they're not trying to trap him, but after seeing how he's answered their own disciples with the business about taxes and God and, and how he silences the Sadducees, maybe, maybe we should actually ask him a question that's been kind of burning in our own minds for a while. Maybe we'll trap him. Maybe, maybe we'll make him look bad. And he won't have an answer. But maybe also he might actually give us a pretty good answer. So they asked him, which is the greatest of the commandments? With this expert asking, which is the greatest of the commandments? And I think that's when he probably pulled that coin back out that was still in his pocket. And flipping it over and looking at the two sides, he said, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But then he gave them a bonus. They didn't ask for a bonus. But he probably thought, well, you know what? They'll probably say, well, what's the second one? What's the third one? So he just shut it all down. And he said, and the second one is like it. I think he looked at the second side of the coin. It's like saying, this is a, this is, there's just two sides. The second side is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he added this real bonus. All of the laws, all of those 613 laws that you know, and all of those codicils and the bylaws that you keep preaching to people, all of that hangs on these two. And then I think that's when he was ready to toss it back to that little disciple, but the disciple took off, so he pocketed the denarius. Here's where we, we get to this part in the story. Um, 
This is question period. And on this day, there are four questions, um, four powerful questions. But the last one isn't asked by the Sadducees. It's not asked by the Pharisees. This last question is actually asked by Jesus himself. And he's teaching in the temple. He's, he, he's, uh, he's, he's talking to people. And the Pharisees are there. And so Jesus realizes no one's going to ask him any more questions, but he still has a message. So he says, you know, let me ask you a question. While the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Now, they were all about the Messiah, the Christ. All of their efforts were always to look, look forward to the coming of the Messiah. All the prophets, all the prophecies, they knew them. They, they believed they understood them. As we'll see, they didn't really understand them. Um, but they were all pointing forward to this time when the Messiah would return. And it was part of their understanding, right from Scripture, that he was going to be from the tribe of David, son of David, from the tribe of Judah. And this was exciting for them because what they were looking forward to, what they believed had been promised to them in God's word, was that the Messiah, the Christ, would be returning. Their Savior would be returning as a warrior king after the fashion of King David. David was a warrior king. If you remember the scriptures, even, you know, when he was fairly young, he was, he was killing animals much larger than himself. And then he became a killer of enemies, not just thousands, but tens of thousands. He was, he was the warrior king who would return them to their position of prominence to be able to worship without being oppressed. Right now they're under the tyranny of Rome. And so this Messiah was going to come from David, by the way, David was uh, born in Bethlehem, just in case you wanted to know that. You've probably heard that town before. So David is, this is who they're saying. He's, he's, from, he's from David. Um, Jesus was setting them up. He was waiting for that. Now, I don't know if it's at this point where they already started to realize what had been taking place a day or so before. Because a day or so before, as Jesus was entering Jerusalem for his final week, that triumphal entry, he was greeted with people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Now Jesus is asking the question, this, this Christ, this Messiah, whose son is he? The son of David. I just wonder whether or not that was still ringing in their ears from these people chanting a couple of days ago. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. He said to them, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself, speaking by the spirit, calls him Lord and declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And Matthew records that from that day on, nobody dared ask him any more questions. Seems like a, seems like a bit of a conundrum. You know, how can he be both? Um, let's, let's first back up a little bit. I think we need to, we need to back up and, and understand what's going on. Last week, I kind of gave you some behind-the-scenes stuff. Well, have you ever been in a room where there's a conversation going on between a couple of people and you realize by the nature of the conversation, it's almost like there's a code. You realize, okay, this isn't the first time these people have met each other. There's some history here because the language going back and forth, you haven't got the foggiest idea what they're talking about, but there's some, some jabs, some digs, some, maybe some sarcasm. There's just something going on that's a subtext that is beyond you. I believe in this particular story, in this encounter, there's some subtext going on that I think helps to really explain the reaction. Why it was at this point, 
Nobody ever dared to come back to him with any more questions. Yes, he had already kind of put the young disciple of the Pharisees and the Herodians in, in their place and the Sadducees in their place and even the Pharisees to some extent. But now he says, whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. Well, how is it then that David calls him Lord? And then he makes this, he gives this quote. So let's think about what happened one to two days earlier when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. The people were were shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the Pharisees weren't really happy that this is the way Jesus was being greeted. I mean, they are, they are the power power brokers in terms of the religion. The Sadducees were kind of like the spiritual aristocracy, the snobs, and people looked up to them, or some did. Most people tended to look at the Pharisees as the, as the keepers of all things God. And now this guy's coming in, and the, the people are declaring this guy to be the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not very happy. And Jesus says to them, and he's actually quoting from Psalm 8, verse 2. He says, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And it says, in the, it says there in Matthew, they became indignant. Why? Well, if you understand actually what goes on <clears throat> in the training of a rabbi, there's a, there's a whole subtext here that is lost on us unless we have some of that information. In order to become a rabbi, <clears throat> you had to go through extensive training. You know, by the time you were 10, 10 or 11 years old, you actually had what we call the, the Old Testament completely memorized. Completely memorized. Certainly the first five books, but memorized. And as you advance in your training, one aspect of the training involved the technique that the rabbis taught each other and taught their disciples. It was a technique called remez. It's the technique of questions. Asking questions. This is why you always see Jesus answering a question with a question or answering a question that begs another question. It's because he was a great rabbi. He was really trained in this, not by other men, but by God himself. All rabbis were trained in this form. It was an art form. And when they would answer a question, the way that you would find out if a, if a disciple of a rabbi was ready to be released and actually be a disciple himself or a rabbi himself, you would, you would indoctrinate him in this teaching and then you would test him. His final exam was a series of questions and he had to respond with scriptures or other questions that didn't give the direct answer, but actually kind of implied where the answer is. And the most famous way, the most common way of doing this is you ask me a question I will give you an answer, but the answer won't actually be Psalm 8, verse 2. I'm going to give you Psalm 8, verse 1. The answer is in verse 2, but I'm going to quote Psalm 8, verse 1. And you're going to immediately know he knows where the answer is because the very next verse actually gives you what I'm looking for. This was the little play, interplay that was going on. And so when Jesus says to them, out of the mouths of children and infants, God's praise will be ordained. That's all he said. And they became indignant because they connected the dots. They finished the rest of the sentence and his enemies will be silenced. He basically, when Jesus said that, he was saying, you're the enemies of God and you will be silenced. And of course, that's exactly what happened that day when he silenced the Sadducees and then the Pharisees. The son of David, they replied, he said to them, how is it the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David when David himself speaking by the spirit calls him Lord? See, they're really challenging the authority of Jesus. And 
If you remember, after the triumphal entry and all of this happens and people are praising him, the first thing Jesus does is he goes to the temple and he clears it out. He gets really angry. He clears it the temple because they're, they're selling things in the temple. He says, this is a house of prayer. Then the Pharisees come to him and say, wait a second, by what authority are you doing this stuff? Under whose authority? Well, Jesus didn't answer them directly because he, he knew that they had already been given that answer like the day before. When the people were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's his authority. This is how you establish authority back then. Rabbis would always teach by basically saying, I'm teaching with the authority of, I look over here, Rabbi Mike. I was trained by Rabbi Mike. And everything that I will say is going to come from the way I was trained. And so after a while, I don't even say it, but you just know. If you're, if you're a student of mine, if you follow me in, 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 in our particular tabernacle, you know that I was trained by Rabbi Mike. So I come in the name of Rabbi Mike. I come under the authority of Mike. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Mike. Jesus was declared, he came in the name of the Lord. He is, his authority is coming from God himself. And so they say to him, where, who's, who, where do you get this authority? And Jesus said, I'll, I'll answer that question if you answer one for me. John the Baptist, remember him? He's dead now. Whose baptism was it? Where did that baptism come from? Was it from God or was it from men? And the Pharisees realized, well, this is a trap because no matter how they answered that question, it wasn't going to go well for them. So they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, then I'm not going to tell you the answer to your question either. <laughs> then we get to where we started last week, the whole interplay with the, you know, do we pay taxes? Yes or no. And then the Sadducees, then the business about the greatest commandment. And now we're caught up to here. <clears throat> It's really important to understand, I think, the way the rabbis would go on at each other to, to really test each other. Because I think that's what we see here. David himself, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. They're talking about the Messiah. This is all about the Messiah. And declares him Lord in the book of Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110. Well, they didn't call it Psalm 110. It was just one of the Psalms. But we have nice little numbers in our Bible now. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? <clears throat> they thought this was a pretty clever answer. It's actually not that clever an answer. Can you imagine any situation where somebody would have a son and then would go on to call his own son Lord? And this is not Lord with a capital L. Because in this particular text here, it says the Lord, meaning God, said to my Lord, who's kind of a ruler over me, can you imagine any situation where somebody would have a son and then end up calling him Lord? This is the rhetorical part? No, this is the interactive part. <laughs> any idea? What if Mark over here suddenly became king? He's in a country where he becomes king. Kevin over here says, Mark is my son, but... If Kevin's a good subject of the kingdom and Mark is the king, Kevin would call Mark Lord. It's just the way it was. Now, we all know, not even at gunpoint's that going to happen, but he'll have issues with the authorities. It's not really a stretch. It's not that difficult. And the rabbis would have known this. They, they've seen kingdoms come and go. This is, not that, this is not that astounding an answer. So why are they not asking him any more questions? Why do they feel that he has shut us up once and for all? It's because of what he's implying. 
Because if you actually read Psalm 110, what you read is a powerful psalm about the coming Messiah, the warrior king, just like King David. He's going to come and destroy everybody. Everyone's going to be under his feet. He's going to subject all the enemies to our rule under the Messiah. Except there's one line in there that they had no idea what it, what it meant. And it was one of those things that for a couple of thousand years, they just kind of pushed it off to the side. Because we don't really understand that, but we'll figure it out one day. And they knew as soon as Jesus made this quote that that's exactly what he was pointing to. Because if they'd answered the question, well, how can, how can David call him Lord if he's his son? David or Jesus would have explained, well, he's a king, so you would do that. And Jesus would just systematically, tactically, surgically go through every line until he got to the one that he knew they had no idea about. Because in this particular psalm, it also says that that Messiah is going to be a priest on the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, now that's a special name. You mentioned that name to a, a rabbi, to a Pharisee, to a Sadducee, to a teacher of the law, and they, you've got their ears because this is the greatest priest in the history of their, their understanding of the history of the world because even before the priests were created under the system of Moses, Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, paid homage, paid tribute to this guy. This priest named Melchizedek, the whole idea of giving 10%, the tithe, we see first talked about in the scriptures when Abraham gave a tithe to this guy. And it says in Psalm 110 that the Messiah is a warrior king, but he's also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. They, they never ever could get their heads wrapped around this one. And they knew absolutely that when Jesus asked this question, how can, how can David call him Lord if he's also his son. They knew that he was eventually going to get down to this verse. And they had no idea. They were missing it. What are you missing? By the way, when, I think on that moment when he, he mentioned that, if, if this was a movie, all you would hear would be crickets. Nothing. They get nothing. So let me ask you. Who is the Messiah to you? Who is the Savior to you? Who is the Lord? This man, Jesus of Nazareth, well, some could say maybe he's just a prophet. And that's a lot of people who will say, this man's just, he's just a prophet. He was a great teacher. I've even heard some say, pretty boldly I might add, Jesus never called himself Lord, nor does it say anywhere in the Bible that he was God. Are we sure about that? See, some would say, well, we have an advantage over the Pharisees because we have the completed word of God. We, we got the rest of the story. Well, yeah. I mean, we do have the book of Hebrews, which is essentially a writing about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. All the stuff in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. And here's the way the book of Hebrews starts off. <clears throat> God says about his son, talking about Jesus, you are God. Let's just stop there. Your honor, defense rests. <laughs> Let's, let's continue. Um, you are God and you will rule as king forever. Well, apart from the God part, the Pharisees are going, yeah, you're king forever. That's good. Your royal power brings about justice. You loved, you loved justice and hated evil. And so I, your God, have chosen you. Okay, God is calling him God. Think about that. God is calling him God. Who does God call God? That's kind of messed up unless you have this idea of, that Christians have about the Trinity, that God is one, but he's three. God also says in the beginning, Lord, 
You were the one who laid the foundation of the earth and created the heavens. They will all disappear and wear out like clothes, but you will last forever. You will roll them up like a robe and change them like a garment, but you are always the same and you will live forever. God never said to any of the angels, sit at my right, hand, my right side until I make your enemies into a footstool for you. See, the writer of Hebrews there is going back to Psalm 110. And all of the implications that come out of Psalm 110. You can say, yeah, but okay, I get it. I, I actually believe that this, this man, Jesus, was Lord. I actually believe that God became flesh. The, the, the Gospel of John, the Apostle writes that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Down in verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh and lived for a while with us. So yeah, I get it. God actually became flesh. God walked with us. Jesus is God. But we got to cut the Pharisees a little bit of slack here because there's no way that they ever saw that in the Scriptures. Your Honor, let me raise into evidence Isaiah 9. This is a passage that we see and hear and read all the time at Christmas time. And every Jew, every Pharisee knows that this passage is talking explicitly about the coming Messiah. This is written more than 700 years before Jesus. A child has been born for us. We have been given a son who will be our ruler. His names will be Wonderful Advisor and Mighty God, Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. His power will never end. Peace will last forever. He will rule David's kingdom and make it grow strong. He will always rule with honesty and justice. The Lord, all-powerful, will make certain that all of this is done. They wanted, they expected a warrior king. And I could show you verse after verse after verse in the Old Testament that proved that they were right. What they were going to get was a warrior king. They just didn't really see the full picture as to what a warrior king looked like and how this warrior would do battle. Is he coming with a sword? He is. The next time. First time he came as a baby in a cattle trough. This time he came with a message of love. And don't fight back. Don't kill your enemies, but turn the other cheek. He came with a whole different warfare. On that particular day, he ended the war of words. And in a couple of days after this, he will end forever the conflict between us and God by dying for us on the cross. When you think about this man, Jesus, who is he to you? Probably the greatest question I could ever ask you. The greatest question that exists in history for any individual is who is Jesus to you? What will you do with Jesus? One of the interesting things about the Jews, I, I, I mean, a number of years ago, I studied about the Jews, and you know, I, I'm probably like many of you. When I first became a Christian, my idea of Judaism was pretty, pretty dour, pretty, uh, pretty grim, because you'd read through the Old Testament. It's hard to really see happiness when you're reading through the Old Testament, because the, the nation of Israel, well, they would get all excited about God, then they would fall away, and they get all excited, they fall away. And there was always God punishing people for stuff. And it just seemed like a God of wrath. But you know what? When you keep reading, you, you realize the Jews, certainly the Jews of the Old Testament, the Jews in Jesus' time, these were party animals. These guys partied all the time. Every excuse for a party. You might say, well, of course, most of the life was miserable because of the oppression of God. No, this was part of how they worshiped God. They worshiped him in parties. Festivals, proactively, they didn't just wait and wait for an excuse to have a party. They put it in the calendar. They could tell you 100 years ahead of time when the parties are going to be. 
because the parties were all about celebrating their relationship with God. We have a party. <laughs> well, it's kind of a small meal that we, we have every week. We call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. What the Jews used to do, though, in celebrating was they would sing. We, we, I mean, we got, a, we got a great band. Band does a good job. We all have fun singing with these young people. But I got to tell you, the Old Testament Jews, man, when they sang, they would sing for days. It would go on and on and on. And you look at some of the most famous songs in the Old Testament were songs that were very, 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 very repetitive. One of the things that a lot of uh, older people, I don't like to say mature, older people, don't like about the younger people music is that it's very repetitive. I remember one day having a conversation with a younger person and saying, you realize that older people sometimes don't like your music because it's very, very repetitive. And the answer I got was, seriously, dude, seriously? Because here's, here's the older person music. You, you, you sing something, then you sing a chorus. You sing another line, then the same chorus again. You sing something else, there's that same chorus coming back at you. Very, very repetitive. Okay, so you know what? Apparently, worshiping God involves repetition. It also involves getting excited. and also involves something back in the Old Testament time, something called responsive singing. I said to Debbie just before church, I said, I'm not sure if, if, unless you're kind of an Old Testament Jew, you wouldn't understand this thing called responsive singing. She said, well, if you grew up in the Anglican church, you would. So maybe you understand responsive singing. 